The following program is sponsored by Wealth Enhancement Group. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Wealth Enhancement Group or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of News Talk 830 and Odyssey Inc. Advisory services offered through Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services, LLC. A registered investment advisor. Certain but not all investment advisor representatives at Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services are also registered representatives of and offer securities through LPL Financial Member FINRA, SIPC. Wealth Enhancement Group and Wealth Enhancement Advisory Services are separate entities from LPL. Wealth Enhancement Group is a registered trademark of Wealth Enhancement Group, LLC. Sound strategies to make sense of your financial life. Answers to everyday questions pertaining to your money. Brought to you by Wealth Enhancement Group, helping you to plan and invest with confidence and clarity. After all, it's your money. It is your money on a Sunday morning. 59 degrees, cloudy skies in the Twin Cities, 8 minutes past 8 o'clock. My name is Susie Jones in this morning, along with financial advisors Peg Webb and Ryan McEwen. Good morning, you guys. Thanks for being with us this morning on the big show on your money. Good morning, Susie. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate it. You're going to join us on this show every single week. And um, you've actually done this show with us before. And uh, what I like about you being our host is you're sitting in the chair doing a couple jobs. You're actually doing the host job, and you're also uh, a, a consumer, meaning someone that's curious as to what it is we do for a living and how do we help folks out there. And so we invite you to ask your questions as well as we go through the outline today. So welcome, Susie. Thank you very much. I must say, Peg, that selfishly I will ask questions because as we mentioned, as we're getting ready for me to join the team, I'm going to be 59, you know, in that magic 59 and a half age for starting to take money out of your retirement accounts is approaching. So I'm like, ooh, this is great timing. <laughs> for me. Yes, it's going to be. So I'll be You're selfish. So <laughs> Thank you very much, yeah. Peg. Yeah. Well, let me introduce our guest today, and actually a frequent guest, I should say, is Ryan McEwen. And, and, and Ryan is exceptional in that he's not only a CPA, but he's a CFP. And some people out there might say, well, what does that mean? Well, certified public accountant and certified financial planner. But the biggest point, uh, and, and it's huge, is a contributor to our roundtable. And he's got such extensive background in tax and retirement income planning. And if anyone in Wealth Enhancement Group needs something and asks a question through the roundtable, usually you're going to get a response from Ryan. And Ryan is also uh, and, and continues to teach classes as an adjunct faculty member at the Minnesota University uh, State University. But what I love about Ryan is that he loves to help out on nonprofits, and then he also plays the drums. So welcome, Ryan, again, uh, and I'm so glad you're here today. Hey, great to be here, Peg. So, so what we selected to talk about is um, a component of comprehensive planning today called estate planning. And, you know, our disciplines of planning at Wealth Enhancement Group include investment planning, tax planning, risk management, and we think that estate planning should also be equally looked at when it comes to your financial plan. But what I thought we would talk first about, or maybe just introduce, what do we even mean by estate planning? Well, I think estate planning, a lot of people think it's just for wealthy people, but the reality is everyone has an estate. You have a bank account, you have retirement accounts, you have life insurance, 
and they all you need to have a plan for what happens to those things when you die or become disabled or become or have health issues so we want to make sure that you have a plan in place for that because if you don't have a plan you know that that creates a lot more grief for family peg i know i see it all the time and with our clients if our clients i always hear about these things after the fact when something bad happens you know where you know someone forgot to to Put a document in place or something and it's the, the amount of stress at that time when a family member's sick or disabled it's it's really awful well it is it, it is truly hard on us and usually our clients are prepared because we're relentless we're relentless in in telling them that they have to have an estate plan make sure that you actually while you're alive decide where your assets should go because Ryan you're right we happen to see it on the backside and sometimes even when the client feels like they're totally prepared then the beneficiaries come in and still maybe create uh, animosity or havoc um, between uh, family members but I find that if indeed they're prepared then there's less of that going on so um, what's a couple points, though? Why do we encourage our clients uh, greatly to just get this done? Well, I think a couple of big points is to avoid something called probate. And probate's the process. It's very costly, very timely. It's the legal process that helps settle in a state. Uh, it typically takes 12 to 18 months. Uh, usually, and it just uh, and, and ultimately the assets do go where they want to go, but there's a lot of hoops involved. I think of probate as like having a connecting flight instead of a direct flight when you're flying on an airplane. And uh, we all know a connecting flight gets you where you want to go faster. And a connecting flight, well, there's lots of things that can happen on that connecting flight, you know, and uh, and eventually you get there, but maybe it's days after you want to get there sometimes. Especially, I, I hear so many uh, airline scheduling changes nowadays. And the second thing is reducing taxes. If you do things correctly, you can help minimize estate taxes. And, and estate taxes are, are only for those that have estates of over $11.7 million in, in, on a federal level right now. But there's income taxes. Even if you don't have an estate tax issue, you might very well have an income tax issue. What we see with our clients is one of the biggest assets they own is their 401k plan with their company or a traditional IRA. And that money hasn't been taxed yet. So if you, you know, if you don't withdraw the money and pay taxes during your lifetime, whoever receives that money at death pays taxes as well. And the amount of tax your beneficiaries get have to pay will greatly depend on what you decide to do in terms of making sure your estate plan is in order. Yeah, and there's a couple more components to what we would call an estate plan. Can you talk about that? Because it's not just people subject to the numbers of estate tax, and I think that's a misnomer out there. So talk about the other documents that people should have no matter what uh, net worth they have. Absolutely. So. A lot of us might have heard of what a will is, and uh, you know, but a will is a document that you uh, are able to dictate where your assets go at death. You're able to name guardians if you have minor children. You can even create a trust for those minor children. Now, 
And it's important to know a will does not avoid probate. And we'll talk about a couple of ways you could do that later on as far as strategies go. But a will is one of the core documents to have in your estate plan. The, ne- the next document is a power of attorney. And this is a document that you're able to designate one or more people to make sure your finances can be managed if you're unable to. Let's say that you develop a cognitive impairment or something like that, and you're not able to act on your own behalf. You can name some to make sure they can take care of your finances. And there's also something called a health care directive. This is a document that helps you name someone that can make those healthcare decisions in the event you're not able to. And one point on the healthcare directive, I think a lot of people think of this document as something that only comes into play at the end of life. And the reality is it's not just end of life. Well, you know, should we, you know, uh, you know, stop resuscitation or not, or something along those lines, we have clients that have long-term cognitive impairments and they need someone to make decisions on their behalf. Uh, you know, along the way, because there's lots of medical things happening. Let's say you have dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, you know, are very prevalent. You got to have that healthcare directive in there, and it's not just for it's not just for healthcare. Um, and and one other point to make on healthcare directives and powers of attorney, and and, and Peg, maybe you do this with your clients too, but I know I encourage my clients who have single unmarried children to get healthcare directives and powers of attorney after they turn 18. Because once your kids turn 18, you're not able to act on their behalf as you did, as you did, you know, they're off to college, they're, you know, you know, starting their own life, but you're still most likely the one as the parent to be in that position to help make medical decisions or help make sure their finances are in order. What if they're in a car accident or or things of that nature? Uh, There's, you know, those are really important documents to have in place. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree, and we talk to our clients about that. Um, what we've talked about so far are a lot of these documents that you have to prepare. Uh, in our practice, we use the word beneficiary a lot. And why do we care so much about beneficiary, Ryan? Well, I, the three documents that I just mentioned, the will, the power of attorney, and health care directive, those are important. But, Peg, I kind of think the beneficiary forms that we talk about all the time with our clients, they, in some ways, are more important than the will, the power of attorney, and health care directive. Because a beneficiary designation, that's something you do when you open up an account or you set up an insurance policy. You're able to designate who receives that account or insurance policy benefit at the time of your death. And you can name both a primary and contingent beneficiary. Most people, they don't realize that these beneficiary designations supersede your will. So even if your will says one thing, if your beneficiary designation says something else, that, that, that beneficiary designation uh, uh, supersedes that. So, Peg, hypothetically, I could name you as beneficiary on my life insurance, even though my, own, my will or my trust might say that my wife receives that benefit, and if I died and you're my beneficiary, you get the money. Yeah, she Isn't that, you know, and most people don't realize that. <laughs> Ryan, your wife might contest that, though, if you set that up that way. Let's just put it, I'd be funny. But I like your example there in that we work so hard on making sure that beneficiaries are listed on everything. 
and actually on, on the reviews that we do with clients too, we bring it up again just to make sure it's exactly who they want. Because of what you just said, it supersedes your will, and that's probably the most misunderstood uh, point. Then there's this word trust, which is still confusing to a lot of people. Like, why would you have a trust versus a will? Absolutely. So a trust, I always say you need a trust when you can't trust, meaning, you know, whomever you're leaving assets to, you have some concerns about their ability to manage their assets, or perhaps uh, they have, uh, you know, they have, they don't have the capacity to manage the investments. If you have maybe a disabled uh, beneficiary who doesn't have the cognitive ability to understand everything. So trusts are typically set up uh, for making sure there's a plan for the assets ahead of time. Some people might consider this managing your estate beyond your grave, beyond the grave, but it's very necessary to help simplify the estate administration because there is a plan in place. If you have a minor beneficiary, it makes sure that they don't receive too much money too soon. You can set up a trust so they get certain amounts at certain ages or perhaps uh, distributions are only made as needed as they need money for things like education or health care, things of those natures especially if you've got uh, disabled, or we often call them a special needs beneficiaries, those types of trusts are a very special kind of trust. They help make sure that those beneficiaries don't receive more assets that might interfere with other uh, assistance they might be receiving with, with, uh, you know, with government benefits in terms of medical or, or other, other types of programs. And finally, uh, I feel like trusts are a really good way to avoid probate as well. You can also avoid probate with beneficiary designations, but trusts I find are really helpful if you've got a lot of beneficiaries and you own assets like real estate. And I'll contrast beneficiary designations with, say, your retirement account at your at your at your company, a financial account like a 401k. If you name beneficiaries, if you have 10 beneficiaries. Each beneficiary can make their own choice as to what to do with the funds. Now, let's say that your let's say you have a house and you have ten beneficiaries. If you can name beneficiaries on a house, it's called a transfer on death deed, and it's allowed by uh, by many by many states. But that means all ten beneficiaries have to get along to figure out what to do with the house. Well, you know, you know, one beneficiary can't say, "Oh, my tenth is the bathroom," and then the other one saying, "My tenth is the kitchen." A trust helps you, uh, you know, name one person to take care of that for all 10 beneficiaries so that it simplifies the estate, reduces the chance for conflict between those beneficiaries to make sure things go where they need to go and everyone can still have Thanksgiving dinner together. And I think that's an important component of any state, estate plan is making sure people can have Thanksgiving dinner after, after mm-hmm. it's all said and done. I like that, Ryan. I like that analogy. And what's kind of interesting is the clients forget. So let's say you did a, you made a trust three years ago and you haven't read it since. Um, we encourage our clients to make sure that they do read it, make sure that, you know, they think what's in it is in it and um, just continue to uh, just remind them. So we've got a little bit of time left, but Susie, what I'd like to do is make sure that uh, listeners have the method to text or call, and not just about estate planning, 
Uh, every topic is open book because Ryan is what I call a walking encyclopedia, right? <laughs> he's, he's super smart, knows lots about everything, so I encourage everyone to ask questions today. All right, very good. The number to call is 651-461-9226. That's 651 651- Four six one nine two two six, and remember, you can text on that line, and also call, and we can get your question on the air. You can ask it of the very smart Ryan, and he'll hopefully have an answer for you, whether it be about estate planning or just a question you might have about retirement or investment. There's a lot going on in the world with the stock market up and down. Uh, when's the best time to sell and buy? Your calls and text at 651-461-9226. And I have one so, right here. Oh, do you want, do, can oh, I do one? Go ahead. Okay. Can I, I love that. Yeah. Can I take a tax free withdrawal from my HSA to pay the Medicare surcharge known as IRMAA? Ryan, is that a curveball or can you handle that one? Oh nope! Uh, there's all sorts of uh, acronyms in there, so we'll we'll uh, we'll uh, simplify the acronyms. And what the what the text the texter is asking is, can I take money from an HSA, which is a health savings account? It's a tax advantage account that you can put money into and distribute tax free for certain qualifying expenses. And they're asking, can I distribute that to help with my Medicare premiums? And they talked about this. Irma, this is a, it's an income-related adjustment. And so if your income goes above a certain level, you do have to pay higher Medicare premiums. But that has nothing to do with, uh, with whether or not they can take money out of their health savings account, their HSA, tax-free. They can, for Medicare Part B and D premiums, which includes the surcharges that they have, they can take distributions from their health savings account tax-free to reimburse themselves for those surcharges and just the ordinary B&D premiums altogether. Now, one little catch is, and I don't know why the IRS did this, uh, maybe I don't think, uh, uh, I've never found a good answer for this. You cannot distribute money for uh, for Medicare supplements. You can do so for B&D, but not supplements, which is kind of interesting. So be careful what premiums you are reimbursing yourself for from your HSA. Great. Another texter writes, do I need a will if I have a trust? That is a great question. And so do you need a will if you have a trust? And the answer, in my opinion, is yes. Most people that have a trust have have a will, but it's the attorneys will often call it a pour over will which means that if you forget to put something in your trust or direct something to your trust during your lifetime, your will, which again is called a pour-over will, pours those forgotten about assets into your trust, and then that way it ultimately gets into your trust and and your plan that you've created uh, is followed through on. All right. Those are just a couple, Peg, if you want to take it back. Again, to remind folks, 651 Four six one nine two two six is the number to call or text with your money questions. It's about nine twenty eight twenty seven. What am I doing? I'm bumping us up ahead. <laughs> anyway, just we only want... have a we only have a couple minutes. So um, everybody listening, uh, Ryan McEwen is with us, and he's going to be here too on the back half of the show. But he is a CPA, CFP 
extensive knowledge on a roundtable of specialists. When he's out of the office, he teaches classes, and he's a drummer, and he's, and he's great. But what I want to do is, I know we only have a couple minutes here, is just talk about, you know, estate planning, why we need it. We just went over the subject of, you know, is it for everybody? You should have your beneficiaries listed. You should review them often. If you don't have a financial advisor, you should do it yourself. You should consider a trust. And I would say that the most confusing thing out there is, why do I need a trust? Why do I need a will? Do I even have to have a will? And more and more we're getting questions about this. But if you're out there listening and you don't believe that this is as important as your investment, or as important as your tax planning and your retirement planning, you're wrong. Uh, comprehensive planning planners like ourselves think it's equally as important. Right, Ryan? Well, I think most people, they value their investments quite a bit, and, the, and they want to make sure things are organized. And if you don't have a plan, you're leaving your beneficiaries set up for tens of thousands of dollars in legal expenses, potentially tens of thousands of unnecessary taxes, you know, so think about the cost of not having an estate plan in place. I often have, I often, most people tell me, Hey, I don't want to leave all my money to everyone. You know, well, most people that work hard for them, they want to make sure they're organized. They don't want to be known as the person that wasn't organized. And finally having an estate, even if your intent is to not leave a lot of people money, is to just it, it's an unpositive unintended consequence of good planning so that so just you know, even if you don't feel it's important it's great all right very good it is 829 on news talk 830 wcco the temperature right now 59 degrees cloudy skies back with more of your money after this it is your money on a sunday morning 59 degrees i'm Susie jones along with wealth enhancement groups Peg Webb and our special, very smart guest, Ryan McEwen. Uh, Peg, we're talking about a lot of things, but there's a lot of interest in what we're talking about. There is a lot of interest, but before we go to the text and the phone calls, because I heard they're coming in, and I love that, uh, Ryan McEwen is actually out of our Mankato, Minnesota office, and he's CPA, CFP, uh, brings extensive tax and retirement income planning. You probably notice if you're a frequent listener that if it's a complex topic, we're going to ask Ryan to be our guest. And there's been so many changes with COVID and tax laws. And, and so if you have any questions out there about anything today, we've got one of our key roundtable specialists with me. And, and you saw at the end of the show, if you listened, I thought, oh, dear, that's a complex question. Nope. Ryan with this is this, that is that, and this is what you need to do. So uh, back to you, Susie. Wonderful. Let's get to the calls. We have Rick right out of the gates from St. Cloud. Good after- Good morning, Rick. Go ahead. You're on the air. Good morning. My question is, my parents had a trust, and I was the executor, so I handled that. And uh, one of my siblings as well has a trust, and I helped her with that. Uh, however, I'm single, never married, no children, and my house, I use the uh, transfer on death thing, and my investments and bank accounts, I have beneficiaries. The only thing I didn't do was my vehicle, yet I found out that that can be difficult to transfer that, so I'm going to put one of them on that, one of my beneficiaries. Today, you 
gave me a good reason not to have more than one on my house, which is fine. I can separate that out. And on the bank accounts, I have percentages. Um, I'm wondering if I really do need a will or a trust since I have uh, the things set up with beneficiaries already. All right. Very good. The, the answer? Well, Rick, first, I think Peg and I can both give you a five gold stars for having your beneficiaries. Uh, Todd, I mean, Peg, do we very have organized, kind of like Very merit? organized, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, we, need a merit, we need a merit badge. <laughs> um, so, Rick, do you need a will? And so I would say yes, just because what if you forget to put something, uh, a beneficiary on something? What if you forget to change ownership? The other thing that people don't realize, and this is kind of an oddball uh, case, but uh, what if you die in an accident? If you die in a car accident, I've had this happen with clients before, uh, what happens is that it's not your beneficiaries that, uh, you know, receive any insurance claims uh, that stem from your death if you weren't at fault or, or something along those lines. It's actually your estate that actually files that claim with the insurance company to help make sure that medical expenses are covered, any type of wrongful death uh, Type, uh, type funds are received. And so that would be dictated by your will. So I would encourage you, even if you have beneficiary designations and, and have joint ownership on other assets, I would still encourage you to have a will for that reason. What if you die in an accident? And if, and if you do, typically those can be, uh, you know, quite a, quite a bit of, uh, money involved. Uh, to make sure that goes to the right place. Again, that number is 651-461-9226, and you can text or call that number if you have a question, any financial question, really, for Peg Webb and our special guest, Ryan McEwen. One texter writes, when does my husband need to start drawing from his work 401k. He's going to be 71 in February. Is there an age you have to start taking money from that, Rick? Ryan? Well, so the work 401k. So the first thing I would ask the texter is, is your husband still working or not? And uh, if your say. husband is still, if your husband is still working, as long as they're working, they don't have to take any required distributions from the 401k plan of the employer they're currently working for. I have clients there in their early 80s and they're still working for that employer that they have that 401k plan for. They don't have a required distribution until the year that they actually separate from service and retire. Now, let's say that that texter's husband is retired. They have to start taking distributions the year they turn age 72. And that's based on the what's called the uniform lifetime table. You want to Google uniform lifetime table. Uh, yeah, it starts out at about 4% of the retirement balance. And they actually, you actually have until April 1st of the following year to take the first distribution. However, you end up having to take two distributions in one year. But it gives you a little bit of leeway that first year because that is a change. And, and sometimes people, you know, people want to just forget that they're getting older and that they're reaching some of those milestones. So you get a little bit of a break there. I say start taking it and go on a vacation. Do something fun. <laughs> All right. I like I like Susie's attitude. Right? Don't wait till you're 80. Come on. Get out there. Go to the Caribbean. Uh, Tom is calling next guys from Moorhead, Minnesota. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Yes. I guess you answered my question kind of 
I'll, uh, I took my IRA and put it in CDs, and I'll be 72 in October, but I've heard the number 72 and a half. Okay. Your thoughts on that, Ryan? 72 and a half? Well, and this is the constant tax laws changing. There, there was something called the SECURE Act that passed at the end of 2019 that went into place in 2020 that changed the required minimum distribution age from age 70 and a half. That was the old required distribution age to age 72 uh, for those who have to take required distributions now. And Peg, I, I think, don't you get this from your clients? I still have clients say 72 and a half too, don't you? Yeah, oh yes. And, and why the IRS, like Susie said in the beginning of the show, she's going to be 59 and a half, and that's a milestone. Like, what is with this half? I don't like so it. Here on the, I know. <laughs> on the SECURE Act, they decided, hey, we're getting rid of the half. It's so confusing. And now it is 72 years old, which I think is actually going to be easier for all parties to remember that it's 72 not 70 and a half but you can start yeah. taking from your 401k at 59 and a half can't you tax-free no no not a 401k an IRA, a Roth IRA you can right uh, a Roth IRA you can Susie as long as you've had a Roth for five years and you're at least at least age 59 and a half but I'm going to go back to your question about 401k 401ks, you can actually take distributions before age 59 and a half without a 10% penalty as long as you separate from service in the year you turn age 55 from that 401k plan. So all these little nuances, oh all goodness. these little nuances, you know, at, at least they didn't, at least they stick to half. So not, you know, I can't imagine. What about 59 and 7 eighths or something <laughs> like that? Yeah, I know. Ripping your shoes off to count to see what number you're at. Listen, it's six well, five. Oh, go ahead, Peg. I was going to say the number. I was going to say with the with the job that we selected, right? This financial advisory. It isn't just one thing that you need to know. There's so many things to know, and I think about people out there uh, getting ready for retirement and all of the things. I think what the show does is it makes them recognize you don't know what you don't know. And so when it comes to advisors, what they want to do is they want to help you see everything Mm -hmm. or at least understand to the degree where you can make good decisions. And then if you throw in taxes like we are, and guess what? If you do something wrong, Susie and Ryan, there can be a 50% penalty, 5-0 penalty on not doing it right. So um, I appreciate the fact that we're getting these questions because – not only does the caller have that question, but so does so many listeners. Yeah. And on that note, Gary is calling this morning from Minneapolis with a question. Gary, good morning. You're on the air. Thank you. I'm selling my co-op of 20 years. What paperwork must I uh, present to my taxpayer preparer in order to uh, take advantage of my homestead tax-free capital gain? Mm. So. So, Gary, what you're talking about is you can use up to a $250,000 exclusion if you're single, $500,000 exclusion if you're married, uh, on the gain on the sale of your primary residence, which it sounds like that's a co-op. And uh, you should get some kind of uh, – you should get a form called a 1099S form from, from the sale of the house. And you'll also want 
and, and so you'll bring that to your tax preparer to help uh, file the tax return. And you'll also want to let your tax preparer know what you paid for your co-op plus any improvements that you might have made to that unit, uh, permanent improvements. Now, a co-op, maybe there's not that many improvements, but, but if you own your own house, if it was a, a standalone location, if you had to put a roof on, put windows in, uh, uh, you know, a permanent improvements like that, that would go into what's called the cost basis, would help, which helps reduce the potential gain on the sale. So 1099S form and what you paid, and uh, your, your accountant will be able to take that capital gains exclusion on the sale of your primary residence. All right, very good. Thanks for that call, Gary. Phyllis is next. Phyllis is calling from New Richmond, Wisconsin this morning. Hi, Phyllis. Good morning. Uh, my question has to do with the best way to save my home from a potential clawback from the government for expenses such as you know, assisted living, nursing home, hospital bills. You get to the point where your only uh, monies is within your home. And I own, I'm single, own my home alone. Is it best to put it in a revocable trust, an irrevocable trust, or just to add my son's names to the ownership of the home? Can that stop them from clawing it back? Well, Phyllis, that's a very complicated question. And, uh, <laughs> Sounded uh, like and it. So, uh, <laughs> and so it's, uh, and that, that's going to require a meeting with an attorney. But in simple, the, the, the thing is, is that uh, in order to avoid that, that asset being subject to any type of medical assistance clawback, you do need to relinquish ownership of the home, and that could be to a, you know, to a child, could be to a, it has to be an irrevocable trust. Revocable trusts provide no uh, protection for those types of things, and you need to do it five years in advance of any type of, of claim. Otherwise, uh, if you do it, uh, you know, say, two years in advance, they can, uh, there is a potential for that clawback to still happen. So you want to do it way before, before you need to. And everything needs to be structured properly. And that's going to depend on your individual circumstances and family, which ordinarily I get into more depth on the answer, but I think that's left, best left to a conversation with, uh, with your own personal attorney. Very good. It is. Yeah, the, 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 Susie, the other thing that I would add there is, you know, the general question here is, you know, we all are worried about being subject to the very, very high costs of long-term care. Or if we go into a facility, and um, I've witnessed this with my own family in that, you know, my grandmother's land had to be sold to pay for that uh, facility that she was in for years and years. So I see that firsthand. But what happens is, is, is and, and I'll just put this out there, Ryan, it can be kind of a moral issue because I have clients come in and say, I just heard my neighbor gave all their money away so that they didn't have to pay for nursing home, and then the government's going to pay for it. So um, can you just address that, just address that well, in that we see that in our practice? Well, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, I, and it is uh, each person will have their own belief on on, on, you know, what to do with that scenario. But I would also say to those people that do give away their assets, there's catches to giving away your assets. You, in order to take, you know, get, have assets not subject to those types of claims, you need to give up control. You need to give up things like step up and basis. Like Peg, you talked about the farm, uh, you know, uh, that you, you know, that, uh, that had to be sold. Well, if you give right. away that farm in order to avoid medical assistance claims, 
you lose a step up in basis if you would have kept the asset in your name until death, which means that if your beneficiary or whoever you gave that farm to, they end up paying a lot of tax if they ever sell it. And also people that have retirement accounts. You have to take the money out of your retirement accounts and pay taxes on all of your retirement accounts in order to uh, give the money away. So uh, there's no free lunch here. You're going to pay, you know, the, the taxes are guaranteed and the nursing home or, or assisted living costs are not. So anyone considering making those decisions, you know, I would make sure that you understand all the catches involved, not only the moral ones, but also the financial consequences. Well, and Ryan, the thing is, is it is within the law, right? It is within the law. So some people think they're doing it illegally or something, but it, it is within the law if you follow the rules. So back to Susie. All right, very good. The number to call if you have a question for Peg or Ryan, 651-461-9226. That's also the same number you would call if you would like to text us a question. Let's go to Patricia in Minneapolis next. Patricia, you're on with Peg and Ryan. Hi, Peg and Ryan. Um, You may have answered this while I wasn't listening. Anyway, I have five beneficiaries for my 401k. After I die, will they each have to pay their 20% of the RMD tax? Got well, so, so, Patricia, that is a good question, and these rules actually just changed in 2020. Uh, before, If you would have died before 2020, you'd be able to do something called a stretch where each one of your beneficiaries would get to take payments out over over their lifetimes. That's changed for anyone dying in the year 2020 or or later, in that if you're five beneficiaries, and I'm going to assume that they're your children, each of them will be able to set up what are called inherited retirement accounts. And they will have 10 years to take the distributions out uh, uh, to completely empty the account by the end of 10 years. Now, they don't have to take anything out for 10 years. They just have to empty the account within 10 years. And whenever they do take distributions, they will pay taxes. And you mentioned the 20% uh, rate on on the distributions. Well, it may not be 20%. It's going to depend on their own individual tax rate based on what their earnings are, what their other sources of income and deductions and, and so forth are. So, again, beneficiaries on 401Ks, uh, typically have 10 years starting with the year after death to take all the money out. No distributions until the end of that 10th year. And, and Peg, I, I, you know, I know you talk about this with clients, too, is that the catch is, if you, yeah, you don't have to take anything out, but shouldn't you start taking some money out before the end of that 10th year? Yeah, and I'm not sure if, um, well, I, I think it depends on who the beneficiary is. And we'd love to have the children of our clients who passed away work with us because we can coach them on that. But I want to throw in here one question that I get a lot in is um, before they change the law, the SECURE Act, about these beneficiaries and typically the kids, is it good to have a trust as your beneficiary? How does that impact this 10 years? Sure. Well, first, naming a trust as a beneficiary in your retirement account can be complicated, and if the trust isn't drafted right, can cause unnecessary taxes. Potentially, having the having the IRA distribution taxed over five years. Now, what changed 
with the SECURE Act that was just put in place in 2020, if you name your trust as a beneficiary in your IRA, it used to be that each, you know, the idea was that you'd want each trust beneficiary to take distributions out over their life expectancy. Maybe you have one child that's a lot older, one that's a lot younger. Well, you want the younger one to take money out over a lot longer period of time. Well, with the trust, you just have 10 years to take the, to take the money out with a few exceptions. They're called eligible designated beneficiaries. That's a whole other topic for another show. But in many respects, I think naming a trust became a lot simpler with with the SECURE Act than it did with the old inherited IRAs because you just have that 10-year window. The tough part is administering it after death. If your intent is for your beneficiaries to just have outright access to the money, you should just name them as beneficiaries directly. Don't name the trust because then the inherited IRA has to be set up for the trust and then you have to go through all sorts of legal mumbo jumbo to then split out the inherited IRA so each one has their own inherited IRA. It's a lot of extra costs and hassle that could have been avoided, especially if your intent was to leave everything to your beneficiaries directly anyways. Man, that seems that just gives me a headache. We actually do we actually do that on our reviews is to make sure now if there are trusts listed, we talk to the clients about their intent Mm. and maybe mention their kids uh, separately. But I wanted to thank Ryan for being here today. Bruce Helmer has a well-deserved day off. Uh, Ryan actually got to answer all the questions, which actually kind of gave me a day off because Bruce usually tosses the questions to me. So thank you, Ryan, for coming. Uh, Once again, he's a walking encyclopedia. We're going to have you on again soon. Um, And estate planning is important. So back to you, Susie. Yeah, it certainly is, and we want to remind people that they can – Call Wealth Enhancement directly and get all of the help that they need in their estate planning or any kind of question. Because I know, haven't we just heard just a wide variety of different questions from different people, lots of texts. Really want to thank everyone for participating in today's show. As you can hear, Peg, a lot of interest in that. A lot of very smart people with those intricate questions that thankfully we have the the answers to. Yeah, and our clients usually call us at at our company an unlimited radio show because our clients, this is what we do every day. They call us and say, what about this? Hey, I just ran into this situation. What would you guys do? And uh, they appreciate us having this roundtable of specialists that Ryan is on to be able to answer the questions and not only answer them, but answer them accurately. So, Well, and how can people get in touch with you, Peg? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not accustomed to giving out that main number. So if okay. you have the, um, <laughs> the number, go ahead. That's yeah. okay. I just wanted to make sure we directed people to the Wealth Enhancement Group. I know there are a number of offices and phone numbers, and we'll get that for you. And we'll have that well, here, in too. Our, in, in, in actually, our website is wealthenhancement.com, and you can reach us on there. Perfect. Wealthenhancement.com. Peg, it was great to talk to you. We'll talk to you next Sunday. I'll see you then. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for your expertise. Have a great week. The previous program was sponsored by Wealth Enhancement Group. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Wealth Enhancement Group or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of News Talk 830 and Odyssey, Inc.